I got to push that button. There we go. All right. Too many, too many technical devices up here. I'm trying to get this one to work, and it's not. So, all right. Good to see you this morning. Hey, I just want to uh, do another commercial for the the uh, play. Uh, we had a great group out last night. Kids did a wonderful job. Uh, the sheriff was a little shady, but uh, everybody else was really good. Uh, <clears throat> I, I just want, I want to tell you, you'll, you're going to miss out if you don't. I just, I was, I was kind of blown away. They just really did great. Now, here's another thing that I would like to kind of give you a heads up on. Uh, last night, we had a number of guests. In fact, we had one family that came that uh, uh, just, they saw our sign, and they said, hey, that'd be fun to do, and, and so that was cool. But what I would like to do is tonight, when, when the performance is over, if some of you think ahead, and if you can plan on it, we know we need to pick up our chairs like we always do, not today after the service, but we'll do it tonight. And then if we could have a few that said, hey, I'll help. We need to carry these backdrops upstairs and uh, just kind of clean up for, for the school session that starts tomorrow, but then also for some things that are coming up. And so if you can hang around so that we, we won't make this announcement at the, at the play because I don't want guests to feel like they have to. But uh, if some of you, our regulars, could say, kind of plan to stick around for about a half hour and help us get things ready for what's coming up next, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. This week, uh, in my <clears throat> own time in, in, the, in the Word of God, I came, I'm in Isaiah right now, which is a, a kind of a appropriate that's a lot of, uh, a lot of Isaiah's prophecies. Remember, if you remember Isaiah, Isaiah was a, a prophet, one of the individuals that God used to speak for him 600 years before Christ ever even showed up on the scene, which is uh, really an amazing thing. In fact, Isaiah is the one who wrote in detail about Christ's crucifixion. I mean, describing details that you would have thought that he had witnessed it actually happened, but the, the reality was when Isaiah wrote, that method of execution had not even been invented. It would not be invented uh, for almost 600 years. And yet, you go back and you read what he wrote, Isaiah 53 in particular, uh, and it's remarkable. He talks about uh, the feet being uh, uh, pierced and the hands being pierced. He talks about the side being pierced. And, and as you read, you see this description. And then he does this remarkable thing in his prophecy because he makes this statement. And, and I don't know what you know about the Roman crucifixion. Uh, a lot of people, if they see it, they, they think it was the, 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 the torture was the hanging on the cross and, and all of that. Certainly there was torture there. But really what it was is it was a, it was a design to cause someone to die in, a, in the most cruel fashion you can because it was death by suffocation. And whether they, sometimes they would nail their hands and feet as they did with Christ. That wasn't always the case. In fact, that wasn't really the normal. Normally, they would tie their hands and their feet. But what would happen is, as they're, as they're, as they're on the cross, uh, after several hours, their legs get tired. And what they would do is they would start to go down. And as they got, went down, because of where they're, the position of their arms, it would begin to push up on their lungs, and it would push the air out, and they couldn't breathe. And so they would be like that until they got a little strength in their legs, and they'd push themselves back up and get a breath of air. And that would go on for, you can imagine, hours, even days, as, as they just slowly, as they finally came to the point where there was no more strength in their legs to push back up, and then they would die after that. Uh, but sometimes occasions would arise where they needed to advance the death. And that was the case when, when Christ and the the two criminals were hung on the cross that time uh, because it was uh, the, the Jews, as you know, the religious leaders were very involved in why Jesus was there, a trumped-up trial that just is a mess in itself. 
but it took place on Friday, hours before their Sabbath. And so to, to honor their Sabbath laws, they wanted the criminals removed and Christ removed prior to the setting of the sun on Friday night, the Sabbath. And, and so to advance the death at times, the Roman soldiers would go up and they'd break the legs, legs of the criminals, which meant they couldn't push themselves up, which meant they suffocated faster. That's exactly what they did the evening when Christ was hanging on the cross. But what Isaiah told us 600 years before this happens is he said that the Messiah, when he hangs on the cross, no bones will be broken. And you remember the remarkable thing was as, as the Roman centurions, as the Roman soldiers went around, they went to the first criminal and they broke his leg. They went to the second criminal and they broke his leg. Then they came to Christ and he was already dead. He had given up his spirit, if you remember the conversation he had with his father on the Christ. And so they didn't have to break his legs, but they did spear his side. And when they speared his side, already the, the, the lungs were having their impact from the death and water and blood separated came out and they knew he was dead. That's how they did, tell, told him he was dead. Remarkable. And, and, and so Isaiah is writing about this 600 years before this type of execution has even been invented. A remarkable thing. And so I always, you know, for, uh, I really, all of Scripture is really important, but, but Isaiah, some of the things he says just are amazing to me as, as God used him to speak. And this week, I, as I'm in Isaiah myself right now, I came across chapter 44 of Isaiah. And uh, what's, what's interesting about chapter 44 is he goes into a conversation and in this conversation, I think why, in, in some way, it fits into our series right now, but why I especially found it appropriate for today is he begins to talk about these things that have a, a tendency to draw our attention away from God. He, he hits a, a little harder because he talks about them, he talks about idols, we don't use that terminology. Well, we do, you know, American Idol, those kind of things. And, and, but, but back in that day, you remember that idols was a, was a big deal. And so he talks about these things, and he's talking to those people, and he said these things that, that draw their attention from God. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, lots of times they were, well, he goes into it. He talks a little bit about it in detail. He says, he talks about, he says, uh, here's, a, here's a, it's a remarkable thing, but it's a crazy thing. He says, you got these individuals called blacksmiths that work with metal. And, and uh, that was uh, something that had been around for a while, even back at this time. And he said, so, so these blacksmiths, they, they go in and they fire up coals and they get the metal hot. And uh, already in that time frame, blacksmiths were making a lot of things, weapons, tools. Uh, they were making things that they would use. Uh, there were already some iron and some metal work in regard to chariots and things that we're going to talk about later. And so he says, here's a remarkable thing. They take this metal and they form it into a hoe or a pick or, a, uh, uh, you know, or to a sword or a shield, or, or, they, or they form it into something that will be used to, for uh, a wagon or some kind of mode of transportation. But then they'll take this same metal from the, from the same pile and they'll, they'll put it in the fire and they'll make it and they'll mold this thing that they'll take out of it and they'll mold it into a form. And they'll stick it in a shrine. They'll say, that metal is a god. You need to worship it. And he's saying, this is nuts. He says, number one, realize you have mortals actually claiming to have made something that is immortal. That in and of itself is craziness. 
He says, but here you go, the proof of the moral. In fact, here's what is interesting. Notice he says at the end, he gets hungry and loses his strength and drinks no water and, and grows faint. Way back here, sidebar, way back in Isaiah time, Isaiah says, you know what? When it's hot and you're working hard, you need to hydrate. You know, God had this all figured out. If we would just listen to him, Gatorade could have been visit, invented years ago. And, you know, so you could, but, but, so he says, here's this mortal individual that wears out, that gets tired, and he makes this thing and suddenly declares it's a God. And the nutty thing is, he says, and then talking to these people, you worship it like it is a God, like it can actually do something on your behalf. He goes on, he says, in the same passage, he says, and, and then you got these individuals there, they work with wood. And, and pretty much the same thing, he says, you know, they, in fact, if you look at the whole, the whole passage, the context, he says, back in those days, in fact, if you've been to this part of the world, <coughs> especially uh, the, the Mideast, woods are hard to come by, wood is hard to come by. And so he says, so they plant their forests and they tend it and they help it grow and and, uh, and then they cut their trees down and they mill them and they get, they get to the point there where they're, now they're going to start making things. And he said, so they, they'll take wood and they make all kinds of things, but he said, sometimes they'll take this wood and they'll shape it into this form and they stick it in a shrine and they say, that's a God. And he said, and here's the nutty thing, the shavings, the part of the wood that they didn't use for, the, for the, this, quote, God, they actually used to heat their house and bake bread. And, and he's saying, how ridiculous is this? How can you, how can you, how, how does that make any sense at all? That part, this part of the scrap, this is scrap, and it, it can use, be used for heat and for baking bread. But this part, it's a God. You need to worship it. And, and uh, so he's, he's talking about, he says, this is nuts. But before we get... Uh, too hard on them, you got to think of ourselves a little bit, especially this time of year. But I, I'm not, I shouldn't say especially, but you know, what are, what are the things that tend to take, and we probably wouldn't phrase it this way, but they tend to take our worship. We may not even say it this way, but the reality is <clears throat> we're convinced that if it, it, whatever it is, or if that person, whoever that person is, or if that position, or whatever, or whatever you want to be, that title, if I didn't have that, I'm not sure how I could go on. At least at this much, I would say is, boy, I, life wouldn't be too good. I, I, I need that in my life for it to, to go well, for me to feel satisfied, for me to be encouraged, for for me to feel like things are where, where they need to be, what they should be. I, I got to have that. Like it or not, that's worship. And like it or not, that, that whatever that is becomes the idol, and it's just as foolish. It's just as foolish. You, you know, I, I was thinking of idols, and, and I, I was reminded of this. Remember, remember the cabbage patch dogs a number of years ago? And uh, the prelude to Black Friday, by the way, but, but here, so here it is, this, this, this doll comes out, and there was a couple of years in a row where, I mean, they were, there were kids that were convinced if they didn't have a Cabbage Patch doll, life would not be worth living. You know, they, they sent mom out, 
and, and they sent him out for Christmas. You know, I think if I remember correctly. And, and mom was sent with this mission. Get me a doll or don't come home. I mean, it was bad. And, and if you remember, there were, there, were, there were folks in stores getting into fistfights because it was down to the last doll. And uh, everybody, you know, and I have to have, my daughter, she, I have to have it. I ha- and, and uh, well, you know, that's like marshmallow fights today to, compared to today's Black Friday. But uh, back in those days, that was, you know, so these things, and, and we, those things that, or people, or whatever the case may be, that take, that grab our heart, and we become convinced that this is a must have. And that's what, that's what Isaiah was concerned about way back then, and he called them idols, and, and certainly they could point to various shrines and idols all over the place. I mean, they were everywhere. But there are still those things that grab our hearts. And we convince ourselves that that's the thing, the, the title, the whatever the case may be, that's, that's the thing that will finally bring me that satisfaction I'm looking for. And the reality is, and you and I, if we've, we've walked through this, we've tried it. We've, we've had, if we go back, if we did a history test on ourselves, we'd say, oh yeah, I used to think it was that. Uh, as a 16-year-old, I, I remember thinking, if I just had a car, if I had my own car, the world would be a better place. I could never be unhappy again. <laughs> now, and, and so we, we got those things in our life. And that's what Isaiah is concerned about and, and what he's comforting, uh, bringing up. But here's, here's what first intrigued me about this, I, this chapter, because he, what I just looked at with the idols is what he goes into. After this statement, he makes this statement early on. He says, this is what the Lord says. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? He asks the question, okay, you, you, your heart's are gravitating in all these different directions because you think it's going to bring, it's going to fill that voids in your life. So, so let's ask the question, what of all those things, all these that you grabbed onto, what of them has, has actually done what you thought it would do in your life? Who's like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. He says, so, so let's say, you know, let's even go back. You got, you got things, you got people that you think they're the smartest people in there, and I need to listen to them. And he's saying, all these things that you go after, which one of these things can point to things that have taken place in the history of the world? And a lot of us, we can, you know, we can say, well, we have records. This took place, a lot of us this week were, were uh, kind of, you know, gravitated towards the television as, as, they, as they buried President Bush and just the, the facts and the historical things that came up. And there were some things that either I'd forgotten or, or, but it was like, wow, I never knew that about his presidency and about that period. And so we have these historical facts and he, and he acknowledges that and, and he says, but, but how many of you can tell me, as you look at those facts, can tell me what was going on in the hearts of the people? Because that's what's going on here. Can tell me who it was that instigated individuals to think a certain way and act a certain way, which led to this historical event. How many of you can tell me what was behind that? Because God's saying, I was behind that. 
I don't just point to the historical thing that took place. I made that happen the way it happened. And then he goes on, he says, and plus, he says, uh, what about what's going to happen? The future, remember Isaiah, we've seen, you know, as Isaiah is writing these things, we've already seen evidence. Isaiah is writing about things that he doesn't even understand. They're in the future, 600 years in the future. And he's speaking for God, and God is saying through him, not only do I know not just, not just the facts of history, but why it took place. But I know what's coming next, too. How many things that you're gravitating to, that you're hanging on to, that you're saying, this is what I need in my life. How many of them that you're idolizing, worshiping, whether you say those words or not, but that's what you're lapping, wrapping your life around. How many can accomplish this? Because... Only I can, and I am the only one that deserves your worship. And he, then he makes this, this wonderful statement. He says, don't tremble. Don't be afraid. And, and see, that's what those other things tend to do because they don't have any control. And we soon find out that, you know, there was that time where we were convinced that if I could reach this level of income, my worries would be gone. And then we reached it and we found out, uh, so much for that. I guess it was the next level. Whatever the case may be. And he's saying, grab on to what really deserves the worship and admiration and the confidence and the trust. In other words, grab on to me as God. And here's what happens. Don't worry. You don't tremble anymore. You're not afraid. Not because circumstances have changed but because you know who's in charge. He said, did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. And that word, and it's capitalized for a reason because it encompasses, you know, there's so many things, this idea of shelter and protection and, and survival. And he's saying, look to me. Don't let your heart go in all these directions Look to me. So, so now, here's the question. So what does that have to do with our series right now? It's time. That's the name of our series. And this verse, we said this is our key verse. This is the verse where we're kind of jumping off each week. But when the time had fully come, Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. And, and he makes this statement talking about the timing of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God's Son, to step into our world. He said, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. So what does all this have to do with this message? Well, Isaiah is saying there's only one God. There's only one, one individual in all of history, in all of creation, and he's not part of creation. He is the creator. There's only one individual that should really get our worship and our trust and our confidence the two we should be looking to to fill the gap in our heart, and that is God. And there's only one individual that we should ever trust that the timing is actually always perfect, and that is our God. And there came a point in the history of this world when our God said, It's time. It's time. 
You know, we look at, at the point when Christ sent his son into this world, and, and looking from now from up here towards back at it, we can see a number of reasons why that makes so much sense. Uh, you know, I, I ran across the story, and, and, and so some of you, I've been intrigued if you've been paying attention because the message title today is, is Romans, Railroads, and Rockets. And you're thinking, okay, let's see how he puts this one together. Well, I ran across this story, and, and I won't, it, uh, it, was, it, was, it claimed to be historically true. I did the old Snoops thing. Is that what it is, Snoops, that does you? Well, I don't trust them because I found them unreliable on a number of occasions. But, and in this particular story, they said that it was false. And then I read, well, why did they say it's false? Well, they said it was false because they couldn't prove it was true. I'm not sure that quite worked. In fact, they pointed back, they said when this, when this whole thing first showed up, it was back in 1906, there was a, a newspaper, uh, one of the major newspapers, a historian wrote, and he said, he, and he did this, this tracing, and, and here's, here's what he traced from history, and, and here's where this is, I'm going to try to put all this together. He, he, the question was asked, you, you know how, how the distance between railroad tracks, the two railroad tracks, anybody know? I'm going to tell you, just, but you know, Josh started us off with a test, so I thought I'd keep it going. But, so the distance is, is four foot, eight and a half inches. And it has been that for a long time. And so you got to ask yourself the question, well, why four foot, eight and a half inches? Where on earth did that come from? Well, it, it actually came from when they first started uh, talking about building a railroad system in the United States. They actually uh, went over to England because they had already built tramways. And, and they had already built railways. So actually, the original engi- uh, uh, engineers came from England to help us build our railway system. And that was their measurements. Four foot, eight and a half inches is how far they placed the tracks apart. But that doesn't answer the question, does it? So you still got to say, well, yeah, but where'd that come from? Well, actually, what it came from from them is uh, their original, when they set their first jigs and things to, to, to uh, start making these things, they copied the, the jigs and the design that they used for wagon wheels. And so that's the distance was the, was the most wagon wheels were that far apart. Well, why did, why did the, was that that standard for wagon wheels? Well, because when they first, uh, when they started making more and more wagon wheels, they were working on, on ro- roads that were made out of dirt for the most part. And dirt, when it gets wet, gets soggy. And when wagon wheels go on soggy roads, they make ruts. And they discovered if they didn't stay to a pretty consistent pattern, they had a lot of broken wagon wheels. So they stuck to that size, four foot, eight and a half inches, so that the wheels would get in the rut and you could just follow the rut, you know, and you'd eventually get to where you want to go. Uh, so still doesn't answer the question. You guys are getting a little irritated now. He's not, when's he going to answer the question? So where did that come from? Well, that actually, they traced back in this article, whether it's true, I'm going to just tell you what it said, actually traces back to Rome. And the Romans were the first ones that, not that chariots weren't around before Romans, but wagons and chariots were a big deal for them. Their, they were, their army and the, the, their use of chariots was an amazing thing. They made it a big part of, of how they fought warfare, and it was very successful for them. And they, had tr- they designed a number of different sizes and, and, and trying to figure out what is the best size of, to, to, of, of a chariot wheels, the most stable and yet, so they could get speed, and so, and they would fit behind the back of two horses. And after a number of experience, they came up with this, the four foot eight 
and a half inches. That seemed to be the most stable size. And so that's what they used as a model to build their chariots and other wagons. And, and so that's then made roots in the world, road. And then when the English started making their, or European, when they started making their wagons, they followed the same ruts, and so we get to this. Well, here's when it gets really interesting, because what's the connection between our space shuttle and a horse's rear end? That's the question. <laughs> well, when they went to design our space shuttle, uh, if you remember, when those shuttles first took off, they had these two rockets hooked to them. They're called SR, SRBs. And I can't remember, I remember this rocket booster, I can't remember what the S was. Maybe someone else can. What was that? Solid, solid rocket boosters. Thank you. I, I, it was, I lost it. So what they designed, the engineers were, were set to work doing the different designs, and the set of engineers that were supposed to, to design the SRB came up with what they said was the perfect size. This is, this is the width, this is how long it needs to be to hold the amount of fuel, to, ca- to cause the stability as they're taking off. All that was part of it, and so they came, and they sat down with the whole team, and they said, here's the size they need to be. The team said, well, there's a problem. Here's the problem. We're having a company in Utah build the SRBs, and we've, dis- we've determined that the best way to transport them is by rail, and we've got to transport them from Utah to Florida which means they have to fit through a series of train tunnels which are only slightly wider than the tracks. So your SRBs are too wide, you need to go back to the drawing board. And so they had to redesign the SRBs to fit through the tunnels that were just slightly wider than the train tracks that came all the way back from the day when the Romans were trying to figure out how wide does it need to be for two horses rear ends to go behind in front of a chariot (laughs) stable. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> what does all that matter? Well, here's why it matters to me. is because God chose the time to send his son when the Roman, Rome and the Romans were in control of the world. And it was an amazing time. In fact, they built highway systems that are still functional today. That's a picture of one. You can actually, it's amazing. And their whole process was they wanted to be able, they had conquered, in fact, that used, they had conquered the known world, as it was called the civilized world. And for the first time in the history of the world, at least for, for generation after generation, you could actually travel the civilized world safely for the most part. Always before, it had been all these all these different areas had been divided up in different na- nations and kingdoms. And, and you could, if you were born in this kingdom, you could stay in that kingdom, but you didn't dare cross over in the other kingdom without special permission. And they were always after each other and enemies. And, and so you never knew where you could travel, where you couldn't. You had to be careful. And, but for the first time in, in the history of the world, the Romans had taken over everything for the most part. And, and they made it, it was safe to travel in any of the civilized world. <coughs> Excuse me, and then that, and then to add to that, they built these elaborate ha- highway systems. Now they did it for their military because they had such a huge area to protect. They needed to be able to move to these places quickly with their chariots and with their equipment and their wagons and all this. So they built these highway systems so they wouldn't have all those ruts so they could get there quicker. And 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 then all over their territory. In fact, Eisenhower, 
He used their idea when he built our highway system. Remember, our highway system wasn't built so that we could go 80 miles an hour between here and Omaha. It was built for our protection as a country so our military could travel quickly get from parts of the year of, the world, of our area. And, and all of that set perfectly the stage for God to send the answer to the needs of humanity into the world and the information, the news, the good news, as it's called, the gospel, to spread throughout the world. For the first time, individuals who came to know the good news could travel safely and tell others, Jesus has come. But that's not all. Here's a quote in, in one of the things I was reading in preparation for this series. He said, while Rome conquered militarily, Greece conquered culturally. And here's, here's what we know. The, the Romans, the Rome, Rome conquered the world. But they had, they had a real appreciation for the, the Greeks, the Gre- Greece, Grecian cup, uh, culture. In fact, they had such appreciation and admiration for them that when they conquered the world, they made a law. And the law was that the trade language of the world would be what's called Koine Greek, common Greek. Like English is used in most of the world today. Back in that day, if you, want, you could go to almost anywhere in the civilized world, and as long as you could speak common Greek, you could buy and sell, trade, and, and all the things that go along with that. It was the world language. And it was set up because of the Romans and their admiration for them. And God sent his son into the world at exactly the right time when he knew the message could spread easily. The good news could get out there. But even more. You know, if you've read in the scriptures or even ancient texts, you'll find that quite often... When nation would go against a nation or a kingdom would go against kingdom, part of, uh, part of the threats and the bragging rights, rights that would go on, in fact, you see clear indications of it in the Old Testament, is they'd come in and they basically say, you know what? We're going to conquer you. And you know why we're going to conquer you? Because our gods are tougher than your gods. And so it was not, not only just the uh, idea of being taken over by an enemy, but it was, uh, you know, our, our pride in our gods... It's a stake here because they've said there our gods are tougher than our gods. You know, my dad's tougher than your dad. My dad was always five eight, so I didn't say that very often. Although he's pretty tough, but but you know, but my god's tougher than your god. And and what had happened throughout the world? Realize this: Rome had conquered the world, which means. Rome had demonstrated to nation after nation after nation, when it comes to protecting you, your gods are worthless. They, they got their, their impotent. They got nothing gone. And so all of these cultures, they were in a period of time where they were pretty disillusioned with their gods. In fact, you see evidence of it. Paul goes uh, uh, into Greece... And remember, he gets into Greece, and in Athens, Greece, and he looks and he has, they have statues for all their hundreds of gods. And, and he walks up to them, and there's this one statue that they have to, the, they say, the unknown god. And he, and he says to them, you want me to tell you who the unknown god is? And they say, yeah. 
And he tells them about the one true God. And, and the fact that they were so disillusioned with the other gods, a number of them said, okay, if you know a God who protects, who loves his people, and that was a new, whole new thought, that actually loves his people, who, who will care for them, who created, who takes care of, sustains the world, then that's a God I want to know. Because they were disillusioned with their gods. Their gods had done nothing for them. So all these pieces were put together. Perfect timing for God to come. But, but then I want you to think for a moment. Because is that the way that the Israelites felt? Nothing, nothing to them felt good about that time. In fact, for 400 years, from... from the, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, or Malachi if you're Italian, the last book of the Old Testament, because that over and over again, the Israelites had rejected the true God for idols and for other things. There had been a period of 400 years where their God had been silent. Not only that, for 400 years, they had been passed from one hand to another as one nation conquered them, and then the nation that they were conquered by would be conquered by another nation, and they were just passed. And, and in the midst of that, just tremendous suffering and evil. They were, they were always being pushed around by somebody. Nothing about the timing in their life looked, felt good, felt right. They were surrounded by secularism. They were not even allowed, in most circumstances, to worship their God. In fact, Rome was, the, was probably the nation that allowed them the most freedom in that area. They couldn't talk about their God. They were restricted in how they worshiped. Nothing, nothing about the timing to them said that God cared, that it was a good time. And yet God knew it was the perfect time. And, and I tell you that for this reason, because you may be in one of those times. And if you're honest in your heart, you're saying, there can't be any good about what's going on in my life right now. It's falling apart. I've made decisions that have come back and bit me in the rear. The future looks so dim, so destructive. I, I'm not sure how I'm going to get out of this. There's, there can be nothing right about this time. And, and I'm telling you, it might be the perfect time. Because you've tried all these other directions and things. And, and you wouldn't have said it this way, but your worship has gravitated in so many ways and you've discovered that none of those things work out. They don't do what I thought they would do. And God says, finally, finally, you're ready. Because I have good news for you. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. Now, for some of you this morning, you may need to hear this. What God sent his son to do was to bring a restoration of a relationship between you and him. And your, your sin, like all of our sin, it broke that relationship. And what he's saying is, because of what my son did on the cross, I am offering you forgiveness. I will wipe the slate clean, and in fact, I will adopt you into my family and I will give you eternal life. And when we hear the word eternal life, we tend to think, after this life. No, it starts now. He says, I want to be a part of your life. I want to be what your world revolves around. Because if you do, you know, it's kind of like, the, I heard the analogy one time, it's kind of like the train. We've been talking about trains and tracks. You know, the train that isn't on the tracks going nowhere. 
It may feel like freedom, but it's not. And God's saying, I want to put your life back on track. I want to line you up with my design because that's where freedom is and that's where satisfaction is and that's where this sense of, okay, it's right. So that's what God's offering you. But you know, I've found that we who are followers or call ourselves followers of God, we have the tendency to, you know, forget where our worship should be directed to. Maybe especially this time of year. And so God said, it's time. It's time to remember who is the only one that has the answers. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for your insight into our lives. <laughs> you know us. You know us so well. You know that our hearts tend to gravitate in directions they shouldn't. Our, we tend to think that the answers are somewhere else. We tend to think what we want is somewhere else, what we need is somewhere else. And it's things, it's people, it's titles, it's prestige, it's uh, the list goes on and on. All kinds of things that we look toward to, to somehow fill that void in our life when the reality is there's only one thing that fills the void. And that's you in a relationship with you. And thanks for that reminder. And thank you for knowing that just the right time you would send your son into our world. And we celebrate that timing, this special season. So we just thank you for in, in all these things, just that you love us as, so much that you sent your son into the world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.